0: You are listening to Church History with Pastor Steve Scoggins. These episodes were originally recorded in front of a live audience at First Baptist Church, Hendersonville, North Carolina. These episodes are abbreviated lectures to be used for the Church History course at Fruitland Baptist Bible College in Hendersonville, North Carolina. We hope you enjoy these episodes and are encouraged as well as enlightened by the content. We welcome you to the 10th lecture in Church History here at Fruitland. Tonight, it's the history of modern missions. I'm doing it in front of a very missionary-minded church here at First Baptist. Now, I've entitled this the history of modern missions because just in recent lectures, we've seen that mission efforts have been going on since the 1500s. The Catholics through the Jesuits sent missionaries. Every time they went to South America and Central America, they had Catholic missionaries. And that's the reason why Central and South America are so strongly Catholic now. We talked about the Moravians last week and how they sent missionaries out to places like Greenland and to America. But what we're going to see today is organized missions in the beginning centered in denominations. And we'll start with the fact that the first wave of modern missions happened with Baptists in England and then Baptists in America. So let me talk to you about these first Baptist missionaries. Uh, When it came to missions... America was very open to evangelism because they were open to the Great Awakening. The Baptists basically said, just give me enough doctrine to get somebody saved. I'm not worried about the fine points. But the British Baptists were a different bunch. They were caught up in the fine details of Calvinism and how things related, and they'd been captured by something today we call hyper-Calvinism, the great theologian that seemed to win the day in the minds of the British Baptists was a man named John Gill. And what he taught was this. He used his logic and said, well, if God before the world began decided in advance who was going to be saved and who was going to be lost, that's what predestination means, then what that means is from eternity past, you were already saved or you are already lost. So he called that eternal salvation or eternal damnation. And then he went even further and said that because God has decreed who will be saved, it would be sinful to share the gospel with somebody who was not one of the elect because you would be going against God's will. Now that captured most of the Baptists, and that's one of the reasons why the revival passed them by in the first part of the Great Awakening. But there was another Baptist pastor named Andrew Fuller, Now, he was aware of what Gill taught, but he also read great Baptists of the past like John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. And John Bunyan loved to share the gospel with people. So as he studied the Bible and read outside John Gill, he wrote a book that was a game changer for us. It was called The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation. They had fancy titles back in that day and time. And here's a quote from the book. Hold up the blessings of salvation for acceptance even to the chief of sinners. The gospel is a feast, and you are to invite guests. So here he had a theological basis that we are to share the gospel with the lost. Well, another Baptist pastor, and by the way, in this time, almost all Baptist pastors were what we call bivocational. It will not be till the 1900s that we begin to see Baptist pastors becoming full-time pastors. And so this man was a part-time. He, on Sundays he preached, but during the week he was a shoe cobbler, a shoe repairman. His name was William Carey. And he read Andrew Fuller's book, but he also read another book that was popular at that day and time called Captain Cook's Travels. This was the day and time in the 1700s where these explorers were going out and they were writing down about these exotic places all over the world and the millions and millions and millions of people outside of Christendom there in Europe. And so reading what Andrew Fuller had said and going back to the Bible and reading about all these folks who'd never heard the name of Jesus. In fact, what he would do is he put a map of the world on the wall where he fixed the shoes and would begin to pray over that world. Well, he wrote a book, and once again, these are fancy long titles. It was an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen. Well, he got invited to speak at a Baptist association. That was the only level of organizations Baptists had at that time, at areas where they organized into associations. And he preached a sermon that's become one of the most famous sermons in Baptist history. It had two points. It was attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And during that, he talked about the duty that we have to go into all the world and share the gospel with all of those who've never heard the name of Jesus. And when he got through preaching that message, an older pastor who was in John Gill's camp literally stood up and said, sit down, young man. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help and without mine. But Andrew Fuller and Carey got together, and they had this burden put on their heart by God and said, we've got to do something to send out missionaries. And so they formed in 1792 a Baptist missionary society to raise money to send missions missionaries out. And in 1793, William Carey and his wife became the very first Baptist missionaries to be sent out. They sent him to India. At that time, the British controlled a great portion of Eng- of India through the East India Company, and so he went there. They paid for his way to get there. Uh, he brought his wife and their children. She was expecting their fourth child when they got on the boat for England. Not long after, uh, for India, not long after they arrived, one of their sons died. The entire family caught malaria, and everyone went into depression because of culture shock. This is something that still happens. I met with some of ours who were going off on missions this fall, and I said, you beware of three months in, this depression will settle in. It happens to every missionary. So they went into this culture shock, but she never got out of the depression. William Carey's wife went mad. Several times she tried to kill him with a knife. She often accused him of adultery and she became so unhinged that unfortunately there was not enough money for him to do work full time. He had to go to the East India Company and manage one of their factories during the day. He had to lock her in her room during the day while he worked in the factory during the day. Kerry focused on mastering Indian languages and translating the Bible into their language. He had a good gift for understanding dialects. So he said, I've got to put the Bible, first priority, put the Bible in their languages. Now, when you go to a, a country and you learn the language, in order to translate the Bible, you've got to develop dictionaries, English to Hindi, all, all the different dialects there. So he could take that, and when he's going to the Bible and saying, what word will I use this here? So he began to develop, uh, dictionaries for seven different languages. He began to work on translations in several different languages, spent years at this, kept all the work that he was doing in a warehouse, and one night the warehouse burnt to the ground. He lost everything. But he got up and said, God's in control. And he went back to the work to reproducing those dictionaries, went back to the work of of translating the Bible into the languages. Uh, Toward the end of his life, he was asked, what was the secret of his success? I love the quote he gave. He said, the secret of my success is I can plod. There have been more talented people who have gone out, but I can plod. He went seven years in India before he had his first convert, But when he led somebody to Christ, he led the right man, a man named Krishna Powell. And Krishna Powell was as powerful in India as Billy Graham was in the last century. He became the Billy Graham of India. And so Krishna Powell, although Kerry only won 700 people to Christ in his 41 years there, Krishna Powell led thousands and thousands to Christ. But he stayed there 41 years without ever leaving the land. Never took a furlough. At the end of the day, he translated the Bible into five major Indian languages. He established a training college for Indian preachers, but he also used his influence to go against some social evils that broke his heart. One of those that he was able to see banished in India was a practice called seti. Now, India is a place of arranged marriages. So oftentimes, an older man would be given a younger wife. But according to Indian law, when the husband died, they would take care of the body by putting it in a raised funeral pyre and then burn it. The wife was required to lay down next to her husband when the funeral pyre was set on fire and would have to die next to her husband. He saw that and said, this is horrible, this is wrong. And so he fought until that was banned from all of India. In 1813, he arrived in, in, in 93, 1793, so 20 years later, the Baptists in Britain formed a national group, the Baptist Union of England, because they had missionaries now and a purpose. So missions created the National Baptist Group of England, the Baptist Union. Now, I mentioned to you that the first missionaries in America were Baptists as well, but they didn't start out that way. The Congregationalists were one of the largest denominations. They were the it was the denomination of the Pilgrims that came over, and they had heard about what the Baptists were doing in India and said, "We need to set up a mission board too. And we need to send missionaries out." And the, one of the first missionaries was a man named Adoniram Judson. Look, you can just be patient with me. I want to tell you his story. He was the son of a congregational preacher, but his dad was so worried when it came college age, he decided to go off to the college that today is called Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And his dad said, son, I know it's going to happen. You're going to lose your faith when you get there. How many parents have, have worried about their children when they send them off to college? And sure enough, he went to college and he lost his faith. He came under the spell of a charismatic, joyful atheist named Jacob Eames. And Jacob, Eames just led him away from his faith. And so to his dad's broken heart, he forsook everything he was raised in. Even though he was the valedictorian in the year he graduated, he decided that he'd spend his life being an actor who would go from town to town and play to play. Well, as he was doing that vagabond life, one day he came to a town. It was late at night. He went to the only inn there and said, I need a room to spend the night. I'm tired. And he said, "You don't. I've got one room. You don't want it. The walls are thin, and the guy next door is dying, and it's not pretty. He is crying out in pain, you'll never sleep all night. He said, I'm tired, I'll take it. And sure enough, he got in bed, and all he could hear was this the terror in this man, the pain that was in this man. As he went through the night, and then about 3 o'clock in the morning, all of the crying stopped. It became eerily silent. That was even worse. So that next morning, he went down to the innkeeper and said, did, did the man live? He said, no, it's a shame. Young man died about three o'clock in the morning. His name was Jacob Eames. And listening to the man that led him away from Christ, enter into eternity, woke him up spiritually. He felt called to the ministry, became a part of a very famous meeting. Uh, they started having a group that were thinking about missions, and they were having a prayer time to pray for the world. They were hearing about William Carey. And then it started raining, so they went into a, a a hay barn, and they called that the Haystack Prayer Meeting. And he was one of those original people. And so he and Adam Arm Judson volunteered to become the first congregational. Uh, he and Luther Rice volunteered to become the first congregational missionaries to go off, and they the Congregationalists decided to send them to India to join side-by-side with William Carey and winning lost people to Christ. Uh, Adoniram married his wife, Anne, just before they got on the boat. Can you imagine the first year of your life being on a boat that starts in America and then goes to Europe, goes all the way around Africa, comes up? It took almost a year to get from England, uh, America to there. During that trip, she got pregnant and lost their first child. Well, as Luther Rice and Adoniram were preparing to go and Joined with the Baptist, they said, we better get our ducks in a row in Bible. We come from a denomination that teaches sprinkling babies. Let's go to the Bible and get ready to win the argument. But in that year-long boat ride, they studied the Bible and they said, you know what? The Baptists are right. So they decided to become Baptists, but that's a problem. It was the Congregationalists that sent them over. So when they arrived in India, he sent Luther Rice back, said, go to America, find the Baptist, and tell them they have a missionary now. So Luther Rice went back. That helped the Baptist in America begin to unite to form a Baptist union so that they can, a Baptist mission society, to take care of their new missionary. Meanwhile, Adoniram and Ann Judson were not allowed to stay in in India. The East India Company did not want the gospel to be preached to these people they were keeping under control, so they had to move on, go east, and they went to the country of Burma. When they got to Burma, they were the only foreigners that were there. See now, at least in India, you've got British workers with the East India Company that you can fellowship with. They They went to a town in Rangoon, that they were the only people that weren't Burmese, and they began to do their work. And he was, he noticed that the Burmese were voracious readers. So Judson, just as Carrie had come to the conclusion, decided first priority is to learn the language and translate the Bible into their language. He arrived in 1813. He had the Gospel of Matthew ready in 1817. The mission board from, from the Baptist sent him a printing press so that he could start printing what he translated. Uh, he formed something called a zayat. Uh, the Buddhists would have uh, a, a, a raised platform where you could come and talk about God. And he would cry along the road, Ho, oh, everyone that thirsts, come. And, and he would have spiritual discussions. By the time 1822 arrived, now that's nine years after he was there, he had won 18 people to Christ. We're not talking about great masses of people coming in the early days of the missionaries. But in 1823, war broke out between Burma and England, not America, but England. But the Burmese could not tell the difference between this American and the British. So they rounded up every British male, and then they rounded arm Judson up because they considered them to be a danger to their country. And they put them in prison camps. Now this is what they did. He was a prisoner for 18 months for 18 months, every night, they had his leg in chains and they were chained to a pole. The men were chained to a pole. And at night, the pole was lifted up from the air so their feet was were in the air and their backs were against the ground. That way they could not escape. The Burmese did not provide food. What happened is if your prisoner is going to eat, the relative has to buy the food and bribe a guard to get it to him. Well, you've got to understand when a war breaks out, you can't get money from home to there. So somehow Anne had the task of finding money to buy food, bribe a guard, and go there. And at this time, she was pregnant. But somehow she managed to get enough food to feed her husband and bribe a guard, but she starved herself in the, in that time. So that when finally her baby was born, she was so weak, she couldn't produce milk to feed the baby. So she not only had to beg for food, bribe a guard, she had to go in the village every day and find a nursing mother somewhere and say, would you feed my baby? After 18 years, he was let, 18 months, he was set free. She was so broken in her health, she only lived about three weeks after they were released, and then she died. And the little girl that she had been caring for and being nursed by others lived only a few weeks after that. The Americans began to send other missionaries to join him. They formed a missionary compound there in Burma. But somehow after that, he went into a deep depression. This is a quote from Judson. God is to me the great unknown. I look for him and cannot find him. And so at first he began to just withdraw during his meals, but finally he just left the missionary compound, went out into the woods and built a little lean-to hut and stayed there. Didn't want any contact with anybody else because he was in such deep depression. One time they sent a missionary out to go check on him, and they found that he had dug his own grave and was sitting there with his feet dangling in the grave in such depression. We don't know what happened, but one day he walked back into the compound and he went back to work and he stayed there for the rest of his life. He was able to remarry. Uh, One of the things that he did that caused God to give him a great harvest, William Carey in India, because in the Asian countries there was often a caste system. And so William Carey said, I'm going to reach the upper caste, the leader's, And then the country will follow, but the upper caste had little desire for God. That's the reason why, 41 years, he had 700 converts. What Judson did was he targeted the lower caste people, a tribe called the the Karen tribe, or today they're called the Karenis, and he saw thousands upon thousands come to Christ. In fact, if I could give this personal aside, a few years ago, I had the privilege of teaching at Fruitland five students who were Karini from Burma who came over here with their families to be trained to do mission work. And so that connection to Judson and Judson um, Justin is still here today. Now let me give you a couple more people that we want to talk about. And every time I'm going to bring somebody out, I could spend hours because I do in class, but I'm going to bring out people who made a significant difference in the way we do missions The next person is one of my favorite people, a man named Hudson Taylor. Taylor was a member of the Plymouth Brethren, but God put China on his heart when he was reading in the papers in England about the Opium War. And so what he decided to do in order to become a missionary is that instead of going to Bible school, he went to medical school. He became a doctor. He said that by becoming a doctor, this will give me a chance to come in and be welcomed and I can make a physical difference and I can share the gospel. So he got his medical school degree and then he went went with a mission agency. But the mission agency had rules that said you have to stay along the coastline because the British provided protection for their citizens along the coastline. So all of the missionaries that were in China were simply along the coastal cities when millions upon millions of lost people who'd never heard the name of Jesus were inland in China. The burden got to be so great for him that he resigned his salary and said, I'm going inland. And then he did something. They they said, he's crazy. He's crazy. Because up till this time, what happened when the Americans and the British went overseas is they wore their British clothes. They built British homes just to, to live in while they were over there. And it was almost like the great British people, the great American people over here to share the gospel. He said, we're not going to reach them that way. So he was a blonde haired British person. He grew his hair long, dyed it black, shaved his head around. Have you seen the pictures of the coolies from the 1800s where they have a ponytail? So he, he, did his hair like a Chinese person would have done in, in the early 1800s. He started wearing Chinese clothes, and so he said, I'm going to adapt to them to keep a barrier away. Now, 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 can I just chase this rabbit a little bit farther? So many times what we did in the early days, we didn't realize we were doing this, but what we were doing is we were sharing not only the gospel, but how to be a good American or how to be a good British person. When we would get them to build a church, it would look just like our churches back home. When we would teach them a song, it would be, uh, in their language, the same songs we were doing. In Ethiopia, in the 1930s, Mussolini and his troops came in and kicked out all of the foreign missionaries. The foreign Protestant missionaries had been there for a uh, hundred years. They had a thousand, no, they have been there 50 years. They had a thousand baptized converts. They were out of the country for seven years, couldn't come in until finally Mussolini was defeated and they could return. When they came back, they found a 100,000 baptized believers. When the missionaries were kicked out, the nationals said, we've got to do it. So they began to go out and do their own evangelism. But when they won people to Christ in the village, they said, build God a house. And you know what God's house looked like? It looked like their houses, thatched roof, mud floor, sitting on the floor. They said, sing God a song. You know what God's song sounded like? Sounded like the songs they sang in their villages. So Hudson Taylor helped pioneer the fact that we need to adjust to them, become a part of their culture. But he also did one more thing. When he came back to to uh, England, he he had this burden that this job of reaching those inland cannot be done by one person. I need to raise a missionary force. So what he did was he called people come to to China and let God provide your salary. He said, "I'm not going to give you a penny." You just pray and let God provide. And he began something that we call faith missions. Up till now, it had been denominations, raising money, sending people out. That was individuals who would go out and trust God. By the time he died, he had a thousand missionaries working under him in China, in the China Inland Mission Society. Let me tell you about another person who helped us in changing the direction of how we do missions. It was a girl named Amy Carmichael. She was an Irish girl. Uh, she had brown eyes, but she wanted blue eyes. And so as a little girl, every night she would say, Lord, turn my brown eyes blue. And God never answered that prayer. She began to grow in the Lord, became a great Bible teacher. And then she heard about the work of Hudson Taylor and said, you know, I need to be answering God's call. So she offered herself to a mission agency. She was sent to southern India And when she got there, she made that adjustment that missionaries were making. She dressed like an Indian woman. She dyed her hair to be what an Indian woman was. And then she said, thank you, God, that you didn't answer my prayer because women in India had brown eyes. So that helped her become a part of that culture. But one day when she was in her compound, at night she would come into a place that had a locked door. As she was walking into the compound before the door was locked, a little girl started running toward her and said, Ma'am, ma'am, don't let them get me. Don't let them get me. And it was a little girl named Prina, and she got her inside, shut the door before the men could catch her, and she heard about a practice in India that she did not know existed. Outside of the places where the gospel is gone, folks, people don't value life like we do, and they especially don't value female lives. So what would happen in India was families would sell their daughters to Hindu temples, And the Hindu priest would use them as prostitutes to get the money to support the Hindu temples. So little girls were sold into a future of nothing but prostitution. Her parents had sold her to a Hindu temple. She was running from the ones that wanted to turn this child into a prostitute. When Amy Carmichael found out about that, she said, they'll never get you. And she began to raise money. And what she did was she went to the Hindu temple and said, I want to buy back every girl I can. So she began to buy these girls before they could be turned into little prostitutes. But that meant she had to clothe them and house them and educate them and tell them about God. So that became the the impact of her life. She went there to share the gospel But she spent her life basically taking care of these young girls. She formed something called the Donavur Fellowship. Well, she lived into the early 1900s. And at that time, in the battle that we'll look at in a few weeks of the Bible and liberalism, some of the liberals were advocating something called the social gospel don't worry about their souls, only take care of their bodies. Well, a missionary came over and said, you're spending all your time clothing them, feeding them, taking... All you do is worry about their bodies. This is the social gospel. I love her answer. She said, if I could find a way to pitch for their souls into heaven, I would. But their souls seem to be attached to their bodies. So I've got to take care of the bodies as well as the soul. Two other people I want to mention before we close this lecture. In the early 1900s, a man named Cam Townsend was a student at, Mich- at, at Moody Bible Institute. He heard the missionaries come by and talk about the need of the world. So he became one of the many students who pledged to go and become missionaries. The particular mission agency that he became a part of was working in the country of Colombia, excuse me, of Guatemala. And so he went to Guatemala, and their mission strategy was they had produced, mass produced Spanish language Bibles. And they said, you're to go door to door and sell these Bibles to the poor people. It was a very small price. But what they had found is if you make them at least give a little bit of money for a Bible, then they will cherish it. So he was going door to door in Guatemala and giving out and trying to sell these Bibles. But what would happen, you've got to understand this, even though Spanish was the official language of so much of South America, most of South Americans w- was made up of indigenous Native Americans, the different Indian tribes. They had their own dialects. So when he would come and offer them a Spanish Bible, one person said this, does God not know my language? That phrase gripped his heart. And God stirred him to say, we're going to do something about getting the Bible into the languages of people all over the world. So he formed something that oversees is called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And he began to, to recruit people who would be the cutting edge of missions. These were missionaries who would go to a place that's never heard of Jesus, never had the Bible. Most of them, their language has never even been put down in writing. And for many decades... The average time was 20 years from the time a missionary would arrive, have to learn the language, learn the culture, figure out the best way to communicate God's Word. Before they could present them a copy of God's Word, it would take on average 20 years of living with the folk. And then now you're prepared so that other missionaries can come in and cast the vision, start the churches, get the fruit. So he he said, we're going to raise up a bunch of people to translate the Bible. So what he did was he brought property in Arkansas, because no place in the United States is more like a third world than Arkansas. <laughs> and so and I know Mississippi gets your vote, Dave, but, uh, but he picked a place he knew would be hot, primitive, no air conditioning. They were made to live in primitive conditions, and they were taught how you learn to hear new languages, write them down, teach people how to read and write. So this group of people started by Cam Townsend, the Wycliffe Bible Translators, has been at it since 1934. How are we doing in getting the Bible into the languages of the world? I went to their website, and their latest statistics are from 2020. And right now, in 2020, there were 7.04 billion people on this planet. And as of 2020, 2021, only 320 million of those people have no Bible at all in their language. Everyone else either has a total Bible or a New Testament or large portions of the New Testament in their language. So we have now covered most of the world's languages because of the efforts of people like Cam Townsend. Now it takes a much shorter time because of computer technology and all that we've got at our hands. But one last missionary that I want to talk about because he altered the way we do missions is a man named Don Richardson who went to the, the New Guinea people in the Pacific he was assigned to a tribe that he would be the one that learned the language. He would be one that learned the culture. But the tribe that he was assigned to was a tribe that they valued lying. They were also cannibals. And so uh, when he was trying, he learned the language, wanted to tell them the story of Jesus. When he was telling them the story of Jesus, how Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, they applauded Judas. He was their hero. One of the stories they liked to tell was how they invited a chieftain from another village to come and be their guest of honor at dinner. And then they ate him. And they said, isn't that great? Well, he was thinking, how in the world do you communicate the gospel to people who have nothing in common with us morally? And then there was a war that broke out with his people and another group people's group. And, he th- and then the time came when they said, we've got to have a peace treaty between these two tribes. He said, how do you seal a peace treaty when people value lying? So what they did was they lined the two tribes up facing one another. And the chief of one tribe went over to that tribe and pulled a baby out of the arms of a mother, brought it across and put that baby in the arms of another mother and said, this is the peace child. As long as this child is alive, there will be peace between our two tribes. And he said, there's my hook. There's where I can bring the gospel in. And he shared with them that we were at war with God. And God couldn't trust us. But what God did was he sent his peace child, Jesus, and that was how he was able to bring the gospel in and bring them to Christ. So he came up with a mission strategy called going to a culture and looking for what he called redemptive analogies. Since so much, so many of us today are familiar with Muslim lands and Muslim culture, what would happen before Richardson is missionaries would show up and say, I'm glad I'm here. Y'all have gotten everything wrong. Let's start from scratch. We're going to have changed whatever name you had for God because we're going to show you the real truth. But what Richardson put out in his book, Eternity in Their Hearts, is this. That The Bible tells us in Romans 1 that God's, God's not left anyone without a witness. There's the witness of creation that points to God's existence. There's one true God. And you can see something of His character in creation. And then in Romans 2, God has given us a conscience so that everybody has a sense of right and wrong. So, so there, there's something that people in every culture have already figured out about God. Go to that culture. Find out what they've gotten right. Start there. So now when our missionaries go to a Muslim culture... They, they use the Muslim, the, the Arabic name for God is simply Allah. So they come and say, we're here to, tell you, to talk to you about Allah. And there's so many things that Allah wants you to know that you haven't heard before. Allah has a son and he came for you. And so they would take what was already figured out from natural revelation in a culture and they start there and then they move on. So I, I hope you've enjoyed this survey. There's so much you can learn. But let me say this right quickly. The assignment for today for your essay is to go through this lecture, think through, is there anything you've heard today from what these missionaries did in their innovations that will help you in your ministry today? Thank you.